0: I got a question for you as we start today, and the question is, anybody hear about the knife that they found on the (laughs) former estate of O.J. Simpson? Anybody? So now, do you think that will prove that he truly was guilty, or will it always remain a mystery, (laughs) or was it even ever a mystery, right? Um, Now, here, is it possible for a guilty person to be acquitted? It is. Is it possible for an innocent person to be convicted? Now, we know that especially now because with DNA, we've been able to prove that some people were really innocent. So then here's the question. What was the most unjust verdict ever handed down? I think most would say Jesus, yeah, Jesus being you know put on the cross was the most unjust verdict that we can think of. But here's a different twist that I've been thinking about lately. From a spiritual perspective, from God's perspective, Jesus was never really on trial. Jesus was the judge. Humankind was on trial on that occasion. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the trial of humankind. And we're going to find it in Luke chapter 22, starting at verse 63, and we'll go through um, chapter 23, verses 1 through 25 today too. But what we're going to see, first of all, in verses 63 through chapter 23, verse 1, is that the Jewish people are convicted. Let me read that portion for you. It says, The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, Prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying, I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. So as we remember last week, Jesus still appears to be in the fluent estate of Caiaphas, the high priest probably not far from the temple. They had a hearing, a, informal hearing with Annas, the former high priest, brother-in-law of Caiaphas. And while that was taking place, the people, the servants and the soldiers and two of Jesus' followers, two of his disciples, Peter and John, were down in the courtyard sitting around the fire warming themselves. Peter denies Jesus three times and he leaves, but John is still there. This informal hearing ends. And if we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we kind of put together the accounts, it appears that Caiaphas got some men together and had a preliminary hearing again. So there were actually two, like, two hearings that evening, you know, while it was still dark out. And then at daybreak, everybody gathered. Seventy men, which comprised the Jewish Sanhedrin, what we call the Jewish Council of the Jews or the, the Congress of the Jews. Not all 70 had to be there, but a good portion of them. And they waited until the sun rose. And they all gathered. In between time, we have the soldiers, the guards, the temple guard probably who arrested him hours before. And uh, they're, they're kind of filling their time with sporting with Jesus, making fun of him, belittling him, mocking him. Matthew and Mark said that they actually bound him. And Mark says they spit on him as well. And they hit him and they made fun of him. And then the day broke and they took him. Before the Sanhedrin, the council of the Jews made up of the chief priest and also of the teachers of the law made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, all of his former accusers. These were the leaders and now they're going to have a hearing with him. Now, again, as we look at everything that was said, there were a lot of things going on and Jesus appeared to have quite a bit of interaction with them. Luke doesn't give us as much detail. His is written later and probably a lot of this was known, but he gets really to the heart of the issue that people would be wondering about and that is was he really claiming that he was the Christ? Now, here's something that I guess I just wasn't thinking about as I was studying, hit me in a new way, and that is that when it says that he is the Christ, well, first of all, they would say Messiah, right? Because they were speaking from Hebrew, it's Messiah, but Luke is writing to Greek people, so the translation is Christ. So he says, are you the Messiah? Mm -hmm. Is" Claiming to be a Messiah, would that be worthy of an execution? At first I was thinking probably so, but then I realized no, it wouldn't be because if you're claiming to be the Messiah, in their mind, they're seeing it from a physical perspective. He's claiming to be a king. So that's, you're in a lot of trouble unless you can prove it, but you're not going to be put to death for that claim. Later on, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed this, but he says, um, you are right in saying, I am I am is the tetragrammon, what we we call, it's God's divine name, it's Yahweh, which means literally I am, I'm the self-existent one. Now that was very offensive to use that name, but usually not a cause yet at that point for execution. It's the other stuff that he says that's recorded by all that dooms him immeasurably. And that's where he says it's very, very interesting when he gets down, he talks about being the son of man seated at the right hand of God. And before he gets into that, notice that he uses some brilliant rhetoric. And he says, you're asking me the question. He said, if I tell you the answer, you won't believe me. You've already decided this is a kangaroo court. He calls him on it. And then he said, and if I asked you, you wouldn't answer me. And that recalls a few days earlier when in chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, they, he asked them, is John a prophet or not? And what they say? we can't say. Because why? Because they were afraid of what the people might say. They were more afraid of the people than they were of truth and than they were of God. And so he calls them on it again. If we were in public, you wouldn't be saying that. That's why we're doing this in private. He says, but you want the answer? I'll give you the answer. He says, I am the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man was almost like a nickname. It was a title, another title for the Messiah. But there are passages in the Old Testament where it seems like the Son of Man is divine, that he's supernatural. And this was hard for the Jewish theologians to understand how that all fit in. And he makes it clear that he's talking about the Son of Man from a divine perspective because he says, I am going to be sitting right next to God at his right hand as his co-regent and his co-ruler forever in heaven. That is worthy of death. He's claiming, essentially, that he's co-equal with God. And that's what really disturbs him. It's understood more when you understand what they were believing at that time. They had added to the Bible. In trying to be real spiritual, they had added to the Bible and they had expanded it. And they'd said, God is so transcendent. He's so high. He's so great. He's so holy that we can't even pray to him. He doesn't hear our prayers. The angels take the prayers and they take them to God for us. We have to have the angels going in between for us. No person could approach God. He's too holy. The only way you can ever approach him is if you sacrifice a lamb or something like that. Then you have a sense of his presence or maybe you're worshiping him and you have a sense of his presence. But God abides alone in heaven. He's too holy to have anybody else there with him. You can't even write God's name down. You should never do that. You just put a mark or you camouflage the name. This is what they were doing at that time. You might be able to stand before God for a short moment, for a sentence of some sort, but then to sit by his side, you couldn't do that. You've gone, you've gone too far, Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. As Daryl Bach points out, he actually answers the question that he asked in chapter 20, verses 44 through 46. Remember, he said, how is it that David, that the Lord says to David, um, he talks about David the Lord. He said, the Lord says, who's, you know, who's, the, who's your Lord? And David says, well, how, how, can, how can David, remember when we were talking about this, how can David be, you know, have the Lord, God, over him? And in Psalm 110, say that the Messiah is under him as his descendant. And at the same time, the Lord talked to my Lord, David said. So how could he have another Lord over him? You see what's going on here? And they're saying, how could the Messiah be David's descendant and the, the Messiah be over David? They didn't understand how that could happen. And David is, and Jesus is saying, this is how it happens. I'm him. I was born through the Virgin Mary, but I am God. 100% God and 100% man. I'm the answer to that question. And I'm the judge of the universe. And I'm the one judging you. This should have stopped them in their tracks. But instead, ironically, they use these very words to say, hey, we've got to take this guy and execute him. And so they gather together, and they go to the Roman ruler. They they couldn't do this. The Jewish people were under the power of Rome, so if they're going to execute a person, they've got to go to somebody who's a ruler in Rome. And the guy over them in that area of Judea where they were at was a guy named Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate usually hung out at his headquarters in Caesarea in this beautiful palace at Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great or Herod I? He was the one who tried to kill Jesus in the Christmas narratives. He built this palatial palace, this beautiful palace, and that's where he hung out. Those were his headquarters in Caesarea. But he was in Jerusalem for the Jewish Passover feast, not because he was Jewish, not because he was religious, but because when Jewish people got together in large groups, there was a chance they might have an uprising. (laughs) So he wanted to be there to keep peace. And so while he was there, he was going to be comfortable, so he stayed in the nicest residence there was, another palace that Herod, who was a great architect, had built. That's significant for us because archaeologists very recently found that that temple, that building, that palace is still in existence, and it's underground now next to the Tower of David, and you can go tour it. So just, I know if some of you are making summer plans, might want to go tour where Jesus was on trial at the palace. They were outside that palace, but that was really where they were at when Jesus, um, would be convicted. So they take him to Pontius Pilate, and the people will join them, and together, as we'll see, they will have a campaign to crucify Jesus, and they will win. This is a, one of the darkest moments in human history. And the Jewish people as a whole are here represented by the guards, who basically see him as convicted before the trial. Uh, The Jewish people there, the, the, the Jewish leaders who say that he doesn't fit into their theological constructs, and the people, the crowds, who are just going to follow whatever they're told to do, which is what crowds typically do. As a whole, there were innocent people, but as a whole, the Jewish people as represented here convict Jesus, and in so convicting him, they convict themselves as being guilty of murdering the man who came to be their Messiah. The Jewish people, in this sense, remind me of the religious people of our day, many of whom would claim to be followers of Christ. Because what we do is we have these people that add on to what the Bible teaches. We have churches in America and around the world that that maybe they started off trying to do the right thing, but they go too far. We have places where they say, if you don't believe the same thing that we believe about the end times, then you're not welcome here, or you're not a true believer. If you don't wear certain clothes, if you don't worship in a certain way, if you don't part your hair a certain way, it doesn't add up for us. And that was more the Pharisee side, but then the more the Sadducee side, we have the other side too, don't we, where they swing and they say so, under the so-called banner of grace, you go and do whatever you want. Sin any way you want as long as we don't have conflict here because we love you. All we want is love. Just go do whatever you want. But that's not what the Bible teaches either. And the problem, I think, what is lacking here is nobody is asking the question of who is Jesus? Who is the Messiah? Who does he say that he is? Nobody is examining him objectively for who he really is. If we're going to come into a relationship with him, we have to really know him. We have to really figure out who he is. It comes on his terms. One of the worst things we can ever do is create our own Christ. And so we see that on one hand. We see people that come to know God, but even in the process of knowing him, they go back to looking at him in ways that he's not, kind of creating their own God. You ever have anybody give you a present that you didn't want? and you realize in the process it's what they would want you to give to them? (laughs) Sometimes people give us presents that they just are buying it for what they would want for themselves. And sometimes I think that's how we treat Jesus. It's like we're giving him what we would want him to do, but we don't realize what's best for us and what he would want from us. So the Jewish people are convicted. Whatever happens to them out of all of this? Uh, If you've been listening to the last few sermons, you probably can answer this question. As Jesus predicted in the year A.D. 70, they were utterly destroyed. After centuries of warnings, they didn't listen, and Jerusalem was completely destroyed, and the Jews were spread and dispersed throughout the world. And that brings up Herod and Pilate, two very pleasant men that we're going to meet now. Um, And we're going to look at Pilate and Herod are also convicted, chapter 23, verses 2 through 24. It says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He claims payment of taxes, um, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently, uh, accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he has sent him back to us. "'As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. "'Therefore, I will punish him and then release him.' "'With one voice they cried out, "'Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us!' "'Barabbas had been thrown into prison "'for an insurrection in the city and for murder. "'Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, "'but they kept shouting, "'Crucify him! Crucify him!' "'For the third time he spoke to them, why? "'What crime has this man committed? "'I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty.' Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with shouts they, loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. So Pilate wasn't really a real nice guy. He was actually a ruthless ruler. He wasn't something that the Bible made up. We can go historically and find him. We don't know a lot about his past, but we know from the years A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, he was the procurator of this area, the military governor, basically, of Judea. So he was a real-life guy. And we know that he had some kind of a friendship with Emperor Tiberius, and that's how he got the position, some kind of a relationship there. Um, We also know that this wasn't a desirable assignment. It was distant, it was dry, it was difficult. These people were easily agitated, usually because of their religious beliefs. And yet... He was a guy who never seemed to understand the Jews. In fact, he seemed to enjoy to torment them. And in fact, he was on thin ice as it was with his superiors because he'd gone over the boundaries one too many times. So he's a little nervous as it is. Now get this, as the procurator, he was the guy that every year would appoint the high priest. For 10 straight years, he appoints Caiaphas as high priest. So he and Caiaphas had some kind of relationship. So this thing is what you might call kind of, you know, politically expedient here to go to him, and it's probably going to work out fine, and they figure, we just have to have our facts, and then he'll go ahead and do the execution for us. So they come to him, and they tell him, well, this guy's a bad guy. You know, he's stirring up trouble here in, among the Jews. He's going to ha- cause problems there, and he wants to keep peace among the Jews. He says, well, he's also, he's against taxes, which, ironically, they were mostly against the taxes, and Jesus had said in chapter 20, verses 20 through 26, just a few days earlier, that... He wasn't necessarily against taxes. But by saying this, they're thinking that Pilate would say, oh, that's going to hurt us financially, and I'm in charge of the finances as well. And then they say he is the Christ. Here they would use the word Christ. He is the anointed one. And Pilate's like, oh, who's, the, who's the Christ again? He's a king. He wants to be king. Well, there's been a lot of insurrection, a lot of revolutionaries. The Romans called them revolutionaries. The Jewish people called them freedom fighters. This guy's a freedom fighter. He wants to overthrow your kingdom. You better get rid of him. So he asks the basic question, are you a king? And Jesus says, it is, as you say. Really good rhetoric once again. Yeah, I am. And you're recognizing it, aren't you? He puts it right back on his lap. And he pricks his conscience. He makes him nervous. It's clear that he's troubled by Jesus. He recognizes from the beginning that he's innocent, and there's something special about this man. If we look at the other accounts, we see that it's even deeper. As it goes on, at one point, Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. Everyone who follows the truth follows me. And Matthew says that his wife came to him and said, have nothing to do with this man because I've had dreams about him. So Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. It appears from Luke's account, even from the start, he realized something's up. And so what does Pilate do? Pilate says, man, i got to get out of this thing. He's like most people. He's weak when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to standing up for what you believe in. So he looks for a way out. And they say, oh, he's from Galilee. He goes, oh, 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 Herod's here from Galilee. He's here for the feast. Why don't you send him to him? He's in charge of that area. And so he passes him off to Herod. Herod is the tetrarch or the puppet ruler of Galilee. And he's there, probably at the Hasmonean Palace, about a 10-minute walk away. So he says, just go, go talk to him. Now, he had had a strained relationship with them. So there's a couple things going on here. One, he can pass the buck a little bit, get somebody else to help him a little bit. But also, he can make peace with Herod. There were a number of problems that they had through the years. The most famous was that he used his power. His, he had a position, higher position than um, Herod, and he got these, these really fashionable gold... Um, shields that had inscriptions on them that were considered pagan and very offensive to the Jews and he decided to put them in Herod's palace. Herod said this isn't going to work he said we're going to do it and he did it and how did the Jewish people feel about it? They had an uproar and Tiberius made a phone call and said get those things out of here now. He got in all sorts of trouble he put his tail between his legs and he moved them out So they're not doing too well. But this is a chance that he can say, hey, I respect you. Hey, you get to meet this celebrity prisoner. See, we're working together, bud. This is a little bit of love I'm showing you. So he sends Jesus over to Herod. What do we know about Herod? Was he a nicer guy than Pilate? Hardly. Not, Not the best guy. His real name was Antipater, and he is the son of Herod the Great. But his formal name was Herod Antipas. He's most famous for his marriage. He married Herodias, his niece, while she was still married to his brother. So he commits incest and he commits adultery at one time. But he was fascinated by John the Baptist. He had him imprisoned and he would have long talks with him. And it sounds like he was enlightened by what John was saying, saw that he was innocent and may have even been listening as John was telling him that what he was doing in his marriage was wrong. But Herodias didn't like that, his wife, so she by trickery persuaded him to cut off John's head, which he did. Jesus calls him a fox because he is a sly and unscrupulous ruler. And chapter 13, verse 1 seems to indicate that he was willing, um, he wanted to have Jesus killed. But in this passage, it sounds like that was at least a rumor But in this passage, it sounds like he wanted to see him more than anything else. This man had a bad character. He's one of the guys, you ever meet somebody where, you know, they seem like a nice person sometimes, but then all of a sudden they can turn on you? He was that kind of guy. And when he turned on you, he could turn on you with violence. So Jesus comes to see him, and he's asking him, Oh, show me miracles. You think Jesus should show this kind of man a miracle? He isn't showing any miracles. He's about to show one, isn't he? He's going to get his answer very shortly. So Jesus won't reply. In fact, Jesus is silent. Daryl Bach makes a good point here. He says, when you're under harsh injustice like this, the best thing to do is just keep silent. But most people can't. Supernaturally, almost, Jesus shows restraint. And so they yell at him and they scream at him and they beat him up and they put this robe on him. It's a It literally, it's not elegant, but lampros in Greek, which means like lamp, so it's bright probably white, but not necessarily. If it was white, it was probably like a toga. Later on, we know that they put a purple, a purple robe over him, a regal robe, and it could have been bright. It could have been the same robe, but they could have changed it. But in either case, they're making fun of him. They're making him look like a fool. And then he and Pilate became great friends after this. And they, you know, they're, they're buddies now. He sends him back to Pilate, and Pilate has all of his bases covered. He calls everybody together. He says, hey, hey, I've I got this thing taken care of, okay? Look at him. <laughs> he's nothing. You can see for yourself he's innocent. He's, he's a nobody. We've just had our fun with him. And by the way, I'm against this. I, I think he's innocent. Herod thinks he's innocent. But look, just to please you guys and get you off my back, I will illegally make sure that we punish him, which is before you know, we ever finish this thing, and I'll do that by whipping him. That's what they would do. I will whip him. And as they knew, the, the Romans, they would put lead and bone at the edge of their whips. And instead of going for 40 whips, which is what everybody else did, then they'd usually go for 39 just in case they miscounted. Because you get around 40, people don't last much longer than that. They would go as long as they felt like going that day, just depend on what mood they were in. And so often people that were whipped by the Romans died. So he thought, well, I'm giving you a good... Bargaining chip here, but how did they feel? Prompted by their leaders, they say we want Barabbas. The other accounts tell us that Pilate had a habit, a kind of a thing that he did, which was every year at the Passover he would release a prisoner. So they said, release Barabbas for us. Barabbas was kind of a small-time insurrectionist, but he was truly guilty. Matthew says he, he was a notorious criminal. But he appears to have been somewhat of a folklore hero for the people, one of these freedom fighters. And so they rally around Barabbas. And Pilate tries to talk him out of it, and they end up overwhelming him, and he gives them Barabbas. And in Matthew's account, remember what he does? He goes and he washes his hands. And he says, I wash my hand of the guilt. The guilt is now on you. Did that sort of clear his name? I think it actually made him more guilty. It enhanced his guilt. Because what he's saying is, I know for a matter of fact that this man is innocent, but I choose to kill him anyway and allow him to be killed. I will not stand for what is right in this matter. Your way be done. And so Jesus is handed over. Pilate and Herod are not acquitted because they let Jesus be crucified because they didn't have to, but they did. They were Gentiles or non-Jews, and they remind me a lot of people today that are not religious, maybe or people who claim to be Christians, but they don't go to church, you know, non-church people and just kind of doing their thing. But God, they have an encounter, in this case, with God. Isn't it interesting that Herod had that enlightened moment with John the Baptist? He knew John the Baptist was innocent. But what did he do? When his wife came to him and his friends came to him and said they didn't want him to do it, and he realized he'd be unpopular, could lose his marriage or whatever, he took John's head off. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus was right and, and there was something special about him. He had that enlightened moment. But when that time came, what did Pilate do? He let him be crucified. And I think that's very much how we are sometimes. Romans chapter 1 says that we're out with, without excuse if we don't come to know God because even nature itself screams out of his his presence and his joy and his care for us. Whether it's through just that sense that out in nature there's something powerful, something bigger than you out there, whether it's through a person's life that you observe that's different than anything you've before seen, whether it's something that's said, whether it's something that you read, every single person in existence will have opportunity to know God. And to the degree that you respond, more information will be given. God will pull you to himself. But most people choose not to respond. Most people kill it. Most people suppress it. Often because it's not popular. Not popular with their family, with their friends, or unfavorable for their career. And even sometimes when we come into a relationship with God, we find that down the road, we begin compromising our faith. Because of what's popular or what's not popular. Or what's going to help us? What's going to be most advantageous to us? Instead of thinking of the eternal perspective. What happened to Herod and Pilate? Shortly after this account, this is in a few years, both men were deposed. They were kicked out of their positions. Herod died in exile, in poverty, and in shame. What about Pilate? His ending would have probably been the same, but from what we understand, he took his own life. And that leads us to our last person, and that is Barsabbas. And then at the end in verse 24, he hands Barsabbas over to them. Barsabbas is fascinating. He's a real-life parable. His life is, if you compare and contrast him with Jesus, it just seems like it's more than coincidence. I believe it's supernatural. Some say he never existed. It's just too unbelievable that these these coincidences could be true. But I think it's just evidence again of how God lines things up sabbath 's name starts it all. His name was Aramaic. That's the language that Jesus and his, his buddies would speak to each other. When they spoke to other people, they'd speak Greek. Just like in, our con- in, in California, for example, there's a large group of people in our uh, state that speak Spanish. And they speak Spanish to one another. But when they want to speak to everybody else, they speak English, right? Well, the same thing was true in those days. You'd speak Aramaic to one another, but then you'd speak Greek to everybody else. And so in Aramaic, Barsabbas means son of the father or son of the teacher. D.A. Carson believes that he was possibly the son of a prominent rabbi. But see the connection there? His name is son of the father, but Jesus is the son of God. Barsabbas is a freedom fighter. Jesus is not, but he gets put to death for claiming to be supposedly a freedom fighter. Barsabbas sets no one free. Jesus offers freedom to all. Barsabbas takes a man's life through murder. Jesus offers life to all. Barsabbas tries on his own to change the world and fails, is thrown into prison, is destined for death and, and hell. Jesus takes his place, swaps him out so that he can be free and live, as he does offer for all of us. You see, we're Barsabbas. If you didn't fit in one of the other categories, you fit in this one. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody deserves a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nobody deserves to live with God forever in heaven. Nobody. We're all sinful, fallen, broken people. And yet God offers through Jesus Christ that opportunity. If we receive him, if we surrender and come unto him, we can change places, so to speak. He can die in our place that we might live. What happened to Barabbas? We don't know for sure. Most people seem to agree that he went to the crucifixion to see what this is all about. And then there's two diverging stories. One story is that he became a follower of Christ. That's the story that Anthony Quinn believed, and that's the role that he played in an old, old movie, if anybody's ever seen that. Um, but there's the other side of the coin, and that is that he continued as a freedom fighter and died and was killed. It's kind of interesting. There's even a parable there. Which will we take? Will we follow him, or will we turn away and be killed? So What I'm leaving us with today, what I'd like us to consider is which we would plead. How do you plead? Um, I would say this, that if you're an unbeliever, you're guilty. All right? You, You deserve hell. But God has more for you. And I would encourage you to objectively examine the life of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is is read the Bible. We have this for everybody. We have a little booklet called The Daily Bread at the back table. Take that home and read it. There's something to read for every day to read and get a Bible. If you need a Bible, come tell us. We'll get you one. And just read through that and read what the Bible is telling you. Ask questions. Pray. Do everything it tells you to do. Get to know people in the church. Maybe even get into a small group. But do whatever you can to learn about who God is and what he's doing Um, in the world and and possibly in your life, uh, that you would come into a relationship with him. You come with a genuine attitude, and I've seen that almost undoubtedly you'll come into a relationship with him. And then the other thing is, as you come along, you have to realize that there will be times that following Jesus will be unpopular with your peers, with your family, with your friends. could even be unfavorable for your career. But then comes the question of, are you going to follow him or not? Now, if you are a believer, you're still guilty. <laughs> you're still worthy of hell. But the good news is, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says that by, but while we were yet sin- still sinners, Jesus demonstrated his love for us and that he died for us. 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 18 says that he died, he took our sins on himself once and for all. There is nothing that anybody can do to come into a relationship with Jesus other than surrender yourself. It's by his grace through faith that you're saved. And as you come into that relationship with him, however, if it's sincere, your love for God will lead you to love your world. It will change your life. It will transform you. And so there's a couple things to consider for us today. The first thing is that though we're forgiven, there's some things that we need to think about. I've been reading The Pursuit of Man by A.W. Tozer, um, and, and there's something he said here that really struck me, kind of ties into what we're saying. Listen to this. He says, failure to get a right viewpoint. You know, understand Jesus for who he really is. Failure to get a right viewpoint in the beginning of our Christian Lives may result in weakness and sterility for the rest of our days. May not the inadequacy of much of our spiritual experience be traced back to our habit of skipping through the corridors of the kingdom like children through the marketplace, chattering about everything, but pausing to learn the truth, true value of nothing. The remedy, he says, is the man or woman who would know God must give time to him. There's no getting around it. If you want to get to know me, I want to get to know you. We've got to be committed to spending time together. If you want to know the king of the universe, you've got to spend time with him. There's no shortcuts. If you want what you see others have sometimes as they've grown in their relationship with God or what you see described in the Bible, what you can have, it's a matter of spending time. Even 15 minutes of prayer a day, 15 minutes reading your Bible getting involved in a small group and building relationships, telling those that are in your life that don't know the Lord about him and inviting them to come to church, those kinds of things. That's that's what we need to be doing. Then I want to leave you too with one more question. Think carefully about this. Is there any place where you are personally compromising your relationship with God, where you're not taking a stand for what is right? where perhaps the tug of popularity or friendships are getting you to compromise or water down your beliefs. Now remember, Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you from your sins, past, present, and future. But we still need to tell him we're sorry. and We need to make sure that we're right with him and we need to work with him, that we might experience his grace in our lives. He died for us. We need to live for him. Anybody see The Bridge of Spies? Anybody see that movie? I, I thought I, recommended, I thought it was a pretty good movie. And it's kind of a neat, neat illustration at the end there because they're on this bridge in Germany in the Cold War, and uh, James Donovan is this great attorney, and he's working out, he's negotiating a swap between these two prisoners, one from the USSR, one from the USA. And they've got to cross and change places with each other. And I think that's very much what God does for us. It's as if Jesus is in heaven and we're on earth. All of us have been convicted of espionage. We are, we're we're spies, so to speak. We've done the wrong thing. But all of us have an opportunity to go to heaven. And the key to that is when we admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that we need Jesus to be saved. When we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave. And when we choose to follow Christ and put our faith in him alone. And if anybody's ever interested in doing that, come and talk to us because that's the beginning. You know, that's where we talk about baptism. If you haven't been baptized, um, first you need to know Jesus. uh, Then that's something that he would call you to do. And I would strongly encourage you to be baptized when we do our baptisms. Come and talk to us about it. So that's when you come into a relationship with God. And if you come into a relationship with God like that, then you can be assured that when Jesus did, he did come from heaven um, to earth. And you don't need to die on earth and, and go to hell, but you can, as he comes here... To earth you can take that bridge back to heaven and you can know because he rose from the grave that when you get to heaven he'll be there waiting for you he'll already have beat you there and be there with open arms will you join me in a word of prayer father again as we get down as we just kind of count down the minutes in our beginning um beginning of the end Series on the last part of Jesus' life. It's its heavy stuff when we think about what he did for us, when we consider the process, when we consider his courage. And and there, there's good lessons too in just um, being knowing when to be silent, knowing when to speak, um, and mostly knowing when to wait on you. Lord, I pray that we would learn to wait on you and we would learn to build our lives around you, that we would be committed about our faith, that each person here that knows you would grow deeper still and be more committed coming out of this time to just even as just 10 minutes more a day that they would spend getting to know the God who made them and standing for him in their life. But I also pray for those that don't know you, Lord, if there's anybody here that's not yet in a relationship with you, I pray that today would be the day uh, that they come into that relationship and experience uh, the swapping of places with the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.